Hey, good morning. Happy Easter. You know, it's, it's good to see everybody this morning. And I know Tina already said this, but if you're visiting with us, thank you for joining us um, this morning. It's a, a special Sunday for the Church of Jesus Christ um, to specifically focus on the reality of his resurrection. And, and this week, you know, we're, we, we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, and, and some, a couple of people asked me if I was going to continue to preach in 1 Samuel for Easter. And um, I didn't think that the slaying of the Philistines would probably be the best <laughs> Easter sermon. So... We are going to take a week break out of, uh, out of Easter, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, specifically verses 3 through 9. If you're new to the Bible, 1 Peter is really close to the end, and it's kind of a short book. It, it's, it goes 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation at the, end of the, at the end of your Bibles, if that helps you find it right towards the end. You know, the truth of the resurrection that we celebrate this morning is a historic reality that, that if you're a believer in Christ, you know that changes your life right now today. You know, it happened 2,000 years ago, give or take, um, and yet it has like current um, relevance for us today. And oftentimes we look back at the, at the historic reality of it and, and, and look at how that impacts us. But the text that we're going to look at today is a little bit different. Um, the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection and who gave his life for the testimony of that resurrection, um, knows the like, transforming power of the resurrection probably better than any of us. And, and when he spoke to the church, the, the, the churches that he was writing to in First Peter, his focus wasn't just to dwell on the past details of the resurrection. Not that that's bad to do, but that's not what he chose to do at that moment. But to look at what the, the resurrection does for us in the future. And to speak to us about like where we're going so that knowing that where we're going, it changes like how we live today. You know, Rachel and I, we went, we have friends in Colorado and we try to get down there, you know, almost every year to visit them. And, and I don't know, anybody from Colorado here? Okay, three of you. Like, good, because I'm going to offend Coloradonians. Or... <clears throat> we can afford three. We're full today. So... You know, Rachel and I went, we were there, and, and I don't know if there was some special thing going on, but there was a couple things we noticed. First of all, has anybody ever seen the Colorado Pioneer plates? They're license plates for your car. You had, you had those, those Pioneer plates? And they have a covered wagon on them, and then in the background, like in the background is a picture of the front range of the Rockies, which is, which is there, and it was real pretty and with this covered wagon. And when Rachel and I were there one time, we were noticing those Pioneer plates, and we were also, and there was also something going on. I think it had to do with the 175th like anniversary of the Oregon Trail, because part of the Oregon Trail passed through like the corner of Colorado, and there was this big celebration about like the journey west, you know. And and living here in Oregon, like Colorado is like east. That's as far east as I ever want to go, pretty much. And, <laughs> in the United States. And if you've ever been, if you've ever been to Colorado, like the main population centers like Denver and north of it, like Fort Collins. And, and I think even I've only been to Colorado Springs once, like south of it to Colorado Springs, like, um, like where Denver is, is like, it's flatland, right? Like if you're like looking, if you're looking like westward, you see like this remarkable view of like the, of the Rocky Mountains. But if you turn around, you're looking at Nebraska, right? If you haven't been there, like the first time I went to, to Denver, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I, did, I thought I was going to be in the mountains. You see all the pictures of the mountains. And I realized, like, I'm just in the Midwest with a better view. Um, 
you know, and the, so, so my mind is spinning like it frequently does. You know, thinking about the people from Colorado who, who like, if you were to drive there, it's like 20-hour drive east of here, celebrating the journey west and realizing, like, everybody that was coming westward in those pioneer wagons that were on the pioneer plates, like, as soon as they saw the Rocky Mountains, they're like, okay, we're done, right? Like, we're stopping here, and we're stopping where it's still flat, and we're going to stop before we get to the, to, the, to the mountains, right? And so I made sure I told my friends, like, you guys understand this celebration of, like, the journey westward, like... Like, Colorado is where, every, where all the quitters stop. <laughs> right? They forgot where they were going as soon as they saw, like, a, as soon as they saw a mountain range. They were like, we're done. We're putting down roots here. It's the Midwest with a better view. Right? So Colorado is for quitters. Vermont is for lovers. But, you know, they should change their slogan. Um, if you Colorado people want to get up and leave right now and pretend like you're going to the bathroom, I understand or something. But yeah, <laughs> the reason why I'm telling the story is that you know it was you know then you know that you might know the stories about like the settlers on the Oregon Trail and how the Oregon Trail was like littered with stuff. You know, like somebody put like their their cast iron wood stove on their covered wagon and they're trying to get across like Wyoming, another place that's not a great place to go visit, like Eastern Wyoming. You know, and eastern Wyoming was, like, littered with, like, you know, grand pianos. I don't know if you could fit those in a, you know, cast iron, like, stoves and chests of clothes because they realized, like, we're trying to get to Oregon, and all of this stuff is just holding us back. And, the, and, you, know, and you know, Oregon, because I'm an Oregonian, you know, are those people that, like, prioritized everything because they knew they were where they were going, and that's what Peter's doing here in our text today, is what we'll see this morning is that Peter wants to remind people, he wants to remind the church, the church that he was writing to were, were Christians, communities of Christians who were feeling increasingly isolated and kind of, kind of increasingly moved to the margins of their society. They, um, at different times in the book, he refers to them as like aliens, as like foreigners, or as sojourners, like pilgrims passing through. And they were kind of feeling increasingly like, like distance from the, the cultures that they were a part of. And Peter wanted to remind them, it's really, really important to remember where you're going. And, and when he, as he speaks about the resurrection, he, just, he talks about the resurrection, then he immediately focuses our attention on the future. Because when we keep in mind where we're going, it makes all the difference. You know, our text is going to break out really into two main sections this morning. In verses 3 through 5, um, Peter talks to them about a living hope. That, that through faith in Jesus Christ, they're, giving a living, they're given a living hope. And then he f- speaks to them about inexpressible joy. So please stand with me if you're able, out of respect for God's word. Um, we're going um, to be focusing on verses 3 through 9 this morning, but I'm going to read all the way from the beginning of the chapter, all the way through verse 12. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our study. So here's God's word for us this morning. <clears throat> Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, scattered oh, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for those that have preached the gospel to us so that we could come to believe in Jesus Christ and, and receive new life and a living hope. And, and so, Father, I just ask that your spirit would be at work this morning, that you would allow me to proclaim Jesus Christ, and that your spirit would open our eyes to understand how um, glorious um, faith in him is. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as, uh, as we get going in this text, Peter opens his letter, and you saw this kind of more explicitly in, in verses 1 and 2, but he opens his letter, like, right out of the gates, kind of a, like speaking about this, the, the deep Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which is this mysterious doctrine about the nature of God and how, how God, like, exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, and as he gets into... To, you know, verse, verse 3, he, he starts praising that triune God, and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as I just don't want you to get hung up on that expression, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because what Peter's trying to do here is he, he's, he's highlighting the, like the Father of Jesus Christ, and so it, kind of indirectly he's highlighting the sonship of Jesus. And oftentimes, like, people would read a phrase like that and somehow think that Jesus is inferior to God the Father. And that's not at all the case. In fact, he, he makes that clear when he uses the word Lord there, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And as you look at all the Old Testament passages that were applied to Jesus in the New Testament that use that word Lord, it's a word that's exclusively reserved for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, I mean, for God himself in the Old Testament. So when you see that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's this affirmation of like all of our allegiance is owed to him and that he is God himself. I just don't want you to get hung up on that. Peter's point isn't to argue for us to all the fine details of the doctrine of the Trinity, but he wants to point out to us that if, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you come to place your faith in him, you like owe praise to the entire Trinity because the entire Trinity was at work in your salvation. 
You know, but as Peter goes, gets into the praise there in verse 3, um, he anchors it in two things, and he, and he praises God for two things. And the two things that it's anchored in are, are the first one is right there um, in, at the beginning of verse 3. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. Like, the thing that we celebrate today, like our salvation because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an expression of the mercy of God upon undeserving people. Like, all of us are here and stand before God simply as expressions of God's mercy. Mercy implies our guilt, and it gives all credit to the one who grants mercy. You know, the second thing that he anchors it in is at the end of verse 3, um, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like our salvation that he's going to be praising God for in the middle of those two expressions is anchored in the mercy of God, and it's anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we find out as we look back at, at the two things that he's praising God for about our salvation is that those things are anchored in Jesus' resurrection. The fact that Jesus was able to come to life and had authority over death means that he's able to grant life to others. And look what he says there in, verse, in the middle of verse 3 who according to his great mercy, here's the first part of our salvation, has caused us to be born again. You know, that expression, born again, like, uh, does anybody remember that, like, campaign kind of thing from, the, like, the 70s or 80s? Like, I was in elementary school, and I have this vivid memory. You do not remember that. You weren't even born in the 70s. So. Church is filled with liars. Um, <laughs> Were you born in the 70s? No, no, not even close. No, yeah, of course, because I was born in 67. You, I, we're about the same age, but yeah. But I have this vivid memory from elementary school. I, I wasn't a, I didn't believe in Jesus at the time, and and I, I remember seeing these bumper stickers, right? Like, like I found it, and then born again. Like there were these. Anybody remember those? And that expression, born again, has been kind of used so much. It's just kind of become meaningless Christian jargon. Are you born again? Like sometimes, like, right? Like, and if you're new to the church, the very fact that I'm saying that probably feels weird to you because it's like, that's a weird expression. But it's not like just empty, meaningless jargon. And if you think about it, like if you trace like the, what Peter is like alluding to when he tells us that we're born again, it has like deep and rich like theological significance, like stemming all the way back to the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel um, prophesied of a day that would come when God would pour out his spirit upon mankind and, and he, would, he would remove our dead hearts and he would grant us like living hearts that, that obeyed God out of our desire from inside instead of just outward religion. You know, and then you can fast forward 600 years and Jesus was talking to uh, a, a leader of Israel by the name of Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus like, what he, what he basically told Nicodemus is that prophecy of, of the Spirit coming upon mankind is fulfilled to those who believe in him. And then the Apostle Paul picks it up in, in Titus chapter 3. When we were in Titus, you might remember this. In Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this about us. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. I lost my spot. I should just look back at the screen. Uh, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God and, our, and 
his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in, in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, that means declared right with God by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, I just want you to pay attention to some of those same words, who, according to his mercy, right? That was on the slide before. That we were saved by the mercy of God, not by deeds that were done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He talks there about washing of regeneration. Regeneration is coming back to life. It's the same idea as this new birth and the, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The news for us as Christians and the news for you, if you've never like placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is that, that our faith in Jesus Christ like, it, it comes with this promise and, and Jesus delivers on this promise that he will make you a new person. You will be, in effect, born again. You'll be regenerated. Like the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that, that you'll have this new heart within you that causes you to like follow the Lord. The, the hope of the gospel is the hope of new life, of being born again. And if you look down at verse 4, it says to obtain an inheritance. You know, Peter's tipping his hand is that not only are you made a new person, but you're given a completely new identity because now you uh, have an inheritance from who? From God himself, right? Which means that you are now a child of God. Your relationship with God is forever changed when you come to faith in Christ. The second thing he praises God for about our salvation is he says that we've been born again to a living hope. You know, hope is an interesting word in the English language because we use it as a verb like, I hope I don't burn Easter dinner today, right? Or, or we use it as an as a adjective like, like, I'm feeling pretty hopeful that Steve's going to finish his sermon on time or I am not feeling very hopeful, as the case may be right? But I, I'm not going to say everywhere because I didn't have a chance to look at every place, but I think almost everywhere. I'll go that far. Hope isn't an adjective or a verb. It's a noun in the Bible. Like we have been given a living hope. And the, the reason why that's significant is that the, there is this hope that is objective, it is real, it is substantive, regardless of whether you acknowledge it, live in it, or let it like motivate your life. Like even if you just stop at Colorado, Oregon still exists, right? There is this hope that is, that is certain in the future, and the scriptures call it a living hope. It's an interesting expression. I was like, that's an interesting way to express living hope. But what he's saying is like, you know, in Jesus Christ, like, we're made alive, and we're giving this hope that is also alive. There's a couple things that he's getting at. First of all, it's the opposite of dead. Like, there is a lot of things in this world that people hope in that are simply dead hopes. You place your security for the future, your confidence that everything is going to turn out okay, your, your identity, the, your acceptance of yourself and of other people on things that are pretty shaky ground. Right? Peter talks about those. Look, just look over at verse 18. Let's look down a little bit at verse 18. He says this. 
He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold from your, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. He's saying like in your original birth that you inherited from your forefathers, you had this futile way of life where you would pursue things. And that word futility just means empty, that are going to be empty, that don't give you anything. But he goes on, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed, verse 19, with the precious blood of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. What he's saying is like, this is a living hope as opposed to the dead hopes that are all around us, all around us and all within us. And, and there are hopes that correspond to being alive. And I think that's the other part of it too. You know, I, I have a grandson and I haven't worked him into my sermons as much as I should because he's pretty cool. Um, my shirt might even be wrinkled uh, because I was holding him, but... Uh, you know, when I'm playing with him, and if grandparents, parents, you probably have the same experience. You know, when I'm playing with him, every once in a while, like, my, my thoughts will drift to the future, right? Like, oh, I can't wait until he can, like, start, well, Pierre thinks this, I'm sure, until he can start playing basketball, right? Like, I, I don't play basketball, but, so I might compete with him for, like, three years. Um, Or I can't wait until he can talk a little bit more, until we can play Legos together, or until we can... You guys know what I'm talking about? And we're always kind of looking forward ahead with, with this expectation of things that go along with life, right? Like growth and life and, and future expectation. And, and, you know, some people, I don't do this, but some people probably even project ahead to like, oh, I wonder who he's going to marry, and I wonder what, right? Like, what I don't spend much time thinking about is like, and that was so cool when I, it was, this is actually kind of cool. I got to pull some strings and, and got to be like clergy and was able to sneak into Salem Hospital like when, when no one was allowed into Salem Hospital during COVID so that I could see him. Rachel had to stay outside. Like. <laughs> but I am like, what is it? Their, their, their faith expert or whatever term they had. They had some weird term. Uh, but I was able to get into the hospital and hold him like within hours of him being born. That was pretty cool. But my mind doesn't go back there. My mind always goes forward because life moves us forward. And what Peter's saying is like, you've been born again. You're now children of God. And you have all of the stuff to like expect in the future. You have a, a living hope, like hope that corresponds with, with life. You know, and, then he, and then he begins to explain what that hope is like in verse 4. Look what he says. Uh, he calls it an inheritance. It's what we have coming to us as children of God. Then he says first the description, it's imperishable. It's a hope that, that won't disappear. It's a hope that won't like rot. It won't tarnish. It won't rust. It's imperishable. It is an eternal hope. Then he says it's undefiled, which I realize that there is almost like nothing in our life. I don't think there is anything in our life. I'll go out on that one that's, that's undefiled. It seems like everything around us, everything within us is like somehow tainted with sin, right? Like, and he's saying this hope that we have is undefiled, completely untainted. It's pure. And it's a ceremonial word too, which is interesting. Like when you talk about things that defile, it means that when I, when I like touch it, like I'm somehow contaminated. 
And so this, and, and I think everything in life, even our good gifts to us, can easily, like, contaminate us, right? Like, we can love our children and our grandchildren, and, and we can make them, like, the hope of our life. And, and in so doing, all of a sudden, we become, like, tainted a little bit. And that very thing that God gave us as a good gift becomes um, something that corrupts us or our job, or our resources, or, or our, like, social status, or, you know, probably the easiest way to understand it is, like, is like wine, right? We, we live in wine country with really good wine, if you like Pinot Noir. And, and you can enjoy the wine, but if you indulge in wine too much, all of a sudden it begins, it corrupts you, right? And he's saying this hope that we have for us is something that we can indulge in, like, completely and fully, Without it, worrying, without being worried about it corrupting us, it is imperishable. It is undefiled, and then he says, um, "And it will not fade away." You know, I, I remember hearing a pastor kind of describe this element of our hope as, as like the never-ending first moment. Like there's there's those there's those moments in your life that are, that where where you're just kind of caught with like awe and wonder like just for a moment like when when you're like you first step up to the edge of the grand can you're like <gasps> you know what i'm talking about but then after you're there for a while you're like ah whatever go ahead play on the edge kids you know like Or, or it's like you see, like the, you see these mountains, or, or you hold your child for the first time, or, 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 and there's those, those moments of just like awe and wonder. But then what happens to them? They quickly fade, and they become commonplace, and they become, they, they, they it doesn't like grip us like it used to. And he's saying, this hope that we have for us will never fade away. It'll never become like old. It'll always be like that never-ending first moment. Every moment of of our life for eternity is what we're going to find out. It is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. And then, here's a great one, it's reserved in heaven for us. And what a, like God is keeping it there. It's reserved. It's waiting there for us. And, and then all of a sudden, if you're like me, I'm kind of like, I know it's hard for you to believe that know me closely. I'm kind of cynical and negative sometimes. Right? Why'd you laugh so loud, Ed? So, <laughs> he's from Colorado. Um, <laughs> and so my mind immediately goes, into, and there's this hope of like this imperishable, undefiled uh, uh, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for me. But like, man, I sure hope I get there. Right? Like, my, my heart is like deceptive. Like I'm weak and I'm, right? But what does he say? Who are, it's reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Like he speaks about our salvation as being future and he says, like, you're going to be protected by God for that day. This salvation that's yours by faith, you're protected by God. And, and it's reserved there for you in heaven. And one day you'll experience your salvation in all its fullness, which means that, like, our experience of salvation right now is nothing compared to what will come. In fact, that's he, Peter almost exclusively in this passage is talking about our salvation as future. Like, it's, it's, we're still on the, on the journey there. We need to remember where we're going, and we're going to this, 
we, we have this hope set before us that is, that is eternal, undefiled. It won't fade away. It's reserved for us. You know, then as we, the, the next thing that Peter then talks about is that as, as, as he moves on to the, speaking about this inexpressible joy. This is our second point this morning in verses 6 through 9. And, and let me just start at verse 6. He says, in this, talking about that salvation, he says the natural response to that salvation that, that is reserved in heaven for us, that's waiting for us on that day, in this you greatly rejoice. Like, if we understand what's waiting for us, our, the natural human response is great rejoicing. You see that? And you greatly rejoice. And again, Ed, Ed, Ed's laugh was, was well-deserved because, like, joy is not a thing that is, like, is an easy thing for me. Like, especially over the last, like, I don't know, five to seven years, it's something I've struggled with. And I talked about this when I had to preach on joy, like, in Advent a couple years ago. But, you know, because sometimes when we think about Christian joy and how, like, oh, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to have this great rejoicing, we think about Christian joy in terms of, like, this giddy happiness that seems completely detached from the genuine emotions that happen when we live in this world that, as we looked at in our Good Friday service, is covered under the power of darkness. When we live in this world that led, that caused Jesus to, to be executed at the hand of Roman executioners, and be buried in a grave. And oftentimes we feel like, man, like, I have these genuine human experiences. As I'm experiencing, like, what it means to live in this world. And yet, how am I supposed to greatly rejoice? You know, and the, the thing about this passage that I just love is that Peter, Peter doesn't have this sort of, like, giddy happiness, kind of, like, naive view of joy. But his, his view of joy is, like, rooted deep. Look what he says. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though... Do you see that in verse 6? I think the ESV just says, though. And then down in verse 7, right in the middle of verse 7, he says it again, that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Down in verse 8, he says it twice, though and though... Like, there is a countless reasons. He gets four of them here. Two of them that have to do with life in this world, and two of them that have to do with, like, the absence of Jesus. There is plenty of reasons not to be joyful. And yet what he says here is interesting. He says that the, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, that's an important phrase, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That word distressed, I think some of your translations translate it grieved. That's what it means. It means sadness. It means distress. It means grief. You greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you're distressed by things and you're grieved by things. Like joy and grief can and probably need to, like, in some ways, like, dwell side by side. And it's interesting what he says there, like, this, this, greed, this joy that Jesus is talking about, or that Paul's, that Peter's talking about, that Jesus makes possible for us, isn't, isn't some giddy happiness that denies, like, normal human experience. It is a, it is a, I have it written down here. I took it from my 
Christmas message, and I was like, I'm glad it's still, the definition still works. Um, it is a deep and durable delight. Three Ds. Deep and durable delight in Jesus that causes us to praise and persevere and pursue him. That's what joy is. It's the best definition I could come up with after like wrestling with it for a long time. It's this deep and durable delight in Jesus that causes us to persevere and praise and pursue him. You know, look at, look at what the text says. He says, it, he says now it's like, if necessary for a little while, like this world we live in makes suffering and grief and sorrow necessary. It's necessary because of the nature of the world that we live in. And, and, and the interesting thing he says is it's just for a little while. In fact, if you look at the way he, he speaks about the, the grief, he speaks about it in the past tense. And he speaks about their rejoicing in the present tense. Even though, you know, he says, you rejoice greatly, even though you've been distressed by various trials. What he's telling us through all of that is that, like the, is that the joy that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that we have in him, the joy that is ours in the resurrection will outlast, outlast the sorrows that require Jesus to go to the grave. The joy that is ours in the resurrection will outlast the sorrows that cause Jesus to go to the grave. But then you might be asking yourself, like arguing in your mind, like, but what if it gets really bad? Like, what if my life, like, what if it really takes a turn for the worse? Like, what if it's so terrible I can't even imagine it? Is it, is, can God still give us joy in that? Look what he says. He goes on. The second, you know, Verse 7, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. That's the second even though. He's like, even if it gets so bad, it's like you're being led through the furnace and poured into a cauldron and everything is melting down and everything about you is burning off. Even then, you can rejoice greatly. Because God has purpose in it. What's the purpose? He says it's, it's, to, it's to reveal what's going on in you. It's to test you. It's to prove your faith. Not all people that claim faith has genuine faith. Jesus talked about it. Like sometimes people are excited about Jesus. As soon as things go poorly, like they bail, right? It, it tests your faith. And for genuine faith, it doesn't like cause it to be burned up. What happens to it? It's refined like gold. Like the impurities are smelted off so that we can like follow Jesus and believe in Jesus more purely and more accurately. God has purpose in it. And look what the purpose is. Uh, second half of verse 7. Even though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a really amazing, like, statement here because we're, we're familiar with, like, all praise and all glory and all honor. Who am I talking about? Who am I talking about? It's Jesus. That's the right answer. But, like, you guys are, like, half-hearted Coloradoans. <laughs> oh, let's just stop. I'm talking about Jesus. Can we give me a good Jesus at least? Jesus. All right. Thank you. Sorry, you guys from Colorado. I, Jesus loves you too. So. 
Maybe. That's still debated. So. Yeah, rough crowd. I knew when nobody laughed at Eric's joke about me finding the phone in the bathroom. It was going to be a tough crowd today. So. <laughs> you know, the amazing thing about this passage, though, is what it says that it may result in, gray, in, in praise and glory and honor. He's not talking about praise and glory and honor coming from us to Jesus. He's talking about praise and glory and honor coming from Jesus to us. He says, like, your, your faith by being tested will cause you to be refined so you'll walk in greater, like, devotion to Jesus and in a greater love for Jesus and in a, in a, in a more, like, like genuine faith in, in Jesus. And that day when he, he appears again, there will be praise and glory and honor to you. And you might be like, nah, that's not really what it's saying. But like, look, flip ahead with me. Flip ahead with me to First uh, Peter chapter 4. This is how he applies it later on in the book. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 11, uh, I think it's 11. Yeah. Um, Peter's talking to like, the elders of the church who are, who are being called to, and the pastors of the church who are being called to like, serve as examples to the whole church. And so this applies to, like, in context, like, real specifically to the pastors, but then more generally to everybody else who, may, who they're serving as examples for. And look at what it says. It says, um, it's not 4.11. Oh, I jumped ahead. But yeah, 4.11. Let me just start here. This is where our minds typically go, right? Whoever speaks, this is talking about our service. I'm sorry, I kind of goofed up there. Let, let let him speak as it were the utterances God. Whoever serves, let him serve by the strength that God supplies. Here it is. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs dominion forever. The glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? That's where our minds typically go when we think about glory and honor. It typically goes towards Jesus. But then skip down to the next one. I'll just like trust the screen because my notes are, I'm lost in my notes. First Peter 5, 4. 5, 4. This is where we're talking to the pastors and who are to serve as examples to the church. And then he says this, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd, talking about Jesus himself, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you see that? This unfading inheritance, this glory, will become from the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, to who? To like those that like follow and worship and serve him. He, he, and then he t- kind of ties it all together at the end here in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter 5, verse 10, it says this, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in, did you see that? Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, one of the one of the things in the scriptures that the scriptures speak about that I don't completely understand is that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are called into his glory and he shares that glory with us. That's unbelievable. And Paul says, like, this testing of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor from like, Christ to, to each of us as he says, like, well done, son or daughter, Right? enter into the joy of your father. It's worth it in the end. 
You know, but the convicting thing about this, and, and especially as a person that struggles with joy myself, is that joy isn't just a foregone conclusion for the Christian or for anybody. It requires like us to, it requires our belief. Like it's an objective reality. It's a foregone conclusion that if, if I belong to the Lord, he will protect me until that day. But right now today, whether I live in light of that reality, whether I live in light of this hope and the joy of my salvation and let it transform the way I respond to the, like living in this broken world today, that's not a foregone conclusion. In fact, what he, look what he says as he goes on back in chapter one. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you see that? The cause and effect is, is that, and he, and he describes faith in two ways. He says that, that if you believe in him, you have joy inexpressible and full of glory. And he describes that faith twice. The first one, he says, and though you don't see him, this is something you except by faith, but you love him. The first like sign of genuine faith is, is it changes your affections from all the things of this world and it causes you to love Jesus. He's like the genuine faith that, that at the end of the chapter will result in the salvation of your soul is one that causes you to love Jesus. It's not just mental assent. It's not just religious behavior. It's not just showing up on a Sunday morning. It changes like what you really love or more specifically who you really love. Where your allegiance is. Where your worship is. Though you don't see him, you love him. And then he goes on. And though you have not seen him, oh, and, though, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Not only has it, does it have this heart component to it, but it has this component with our mind. Like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was a historic reality upon which our entire faith rests. We need to believe that. We need to believe that Jesus died in my place, that the curse that fell upon me and the condemnation that I justly deserve fell upon him. And then when he cried out on that day, it is finished. Like he dealt with my sin forever, for all time. And, if, and, and if, I, if I believe in him, if I have this genuine faith in him, I'll obtain the salvation of my soul. And he says, and, and when you have that kind of faith, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Right? You know, the convicting thing for me is that my struggle with joy is oftentimes a struggle with faith. You know, I acknowledge the truth of Jesus. I show up at church. I show up at church more than any of y'all because I work here. <laughs> and yet, like, do I really believe what we say we believe? Do we really believe that Christ has overcome the grave, that, that we have this hope for us reserved in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, that even the trials of this present world are simply refining us to magnify the, the, like, that moment when, when Jesus revealed and, and, he, and he lavishes upon us like praise and glory and honor that, that ultimately is only because of him. I really believe that if I did, like, Maybe those things that 
like are burdening me all the time would just like be, those things would begin to fade. Maybe my joy would come a little bit quicker. You know, and some of you here, maybe you've done the religious thing. Maybe you have this mental assent to the truths of the gospel, but you have no love of God that's like changed your affections. That's what, the, that's what that whole idea of like the, the work of the Spirit of Christ, the new birth, the new birth gives you a new heart. If your faith is just a mental thing or a religious thing, like I want to challenge you, like, and come to Jesus Christ and confess your sin to him and rely upon him both in your heart and from your mind and, and trust in the realities of what he's accomplished for you and, and experience new life this morning. You know, if you think about it, like, what more, what more could God do to demonstrate his love to us than, than the things that we've been remembering this weekend? Like, yeah, he, if you were here for Good Friday, and if not, it was still true, right? Like, Jesus Christ, like, suffered be- betrayal and false accusation and suffering and agony of spirit and, and mockery and torture and ultimately death. And it, and it was... And the reason why is this fancy word that the scriptures use called propitiation. And that, that word, propitiation, means it's an, it's an atoning sacrifice that fully satisfies the judgment. Like, each of us, each of us stands guilty before God. One day when he's re, he returns, there could be praise and glory and honor coming from him, or it may be something else. And yet, like God demonstrates his love to us in a, an unbelievable way. And what else could he do? In fact, John says it this way in 1 John 4. And, and Brian, you can come up with the team. In 1 John 4, John says this, the apostle John, who was also a witness to the resurrection, he was there that, that day. He says, by this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that word. And he says, and, and the essence of propitiation, what it demonstrates is it's like God loves you more than anything. And if, if you can't respond in, in faith and love, in belief and love, like what does it say? What else could God do? What else could God do to prove his, his love to you, to prove his commitment to you, to prove that that he can deliver on his promises. Does he have to raise from the dead? Right? And then he rose from the dead to prove that he could deliver on his promises. You know, and so I think for each of us, there's something that we can take away from this. Like, I think a lot of us, like, are probably like the settlers on the Oregon Trail that are, our wagons are just full of just garbage. Right? I think the writer of Hebrews says that like, uh, how does he say it? Um, yeah, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, what, faith? 
so that because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You know, and, and maybe our lack of joy, our lack of rejoicing, it, it demonstrates to us that we just struggle to believe what we say we believe. And then there's some of you who are still, like, dead in your sins. Like, the, the opposite of being born again is to be dead in your sins. And you still sit under the judgment of God, and, and the only, like, hope for you and for your future is to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who gave himself out of his love for you as a propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. So, Brian, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer. You know that some of those lyrics from that song where I think we're taken out of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John that we just read from him uh, had this vision of Jesus that depicted him as like this lion, the one that's going to come in judgment. And then, and then it depicts him as like this lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. And, and John began to weep because no one was found worthy to, to uh, kind of resolve all the conflict here on earth. And and somebody standing by, John said this to him. He says, um, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. He's overcome the grave. He's overcome sin. So as to open the book. And then it, that chapter ends like with this. And, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Frank, could you just lead us on the chorus again or whatever that is? So. And I will rise when he calls my name no more sorrow no more pain i will rise on eagle's wings before my god fall on my knees and rise thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I thank you for your great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And Father, just to ask if there's anyone here that has not experienced that, that you would just convict them of their sin, that you would reveal the beauty of Jesus to them and, and the grace that he offers and that you would save them today. And, and for us who do believe that, Father, I just ask that you would help us to, to love you deeper, to believe in you more, and, and to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.